It's time to hit the switch on your energy supply. Make the switch to SSE Airtricity right now, and not only will you be joining Ireland's largest green energy provider, you'll also save 33% on electricity and gas. Yes, 33%. Go to sseairtricity.com today and get your 33% discount exclusively online. SSE Airtricity. This is Generation Green. EAB €2,168.23. Offer online only from the 10th of the 1st, 22. Rates valid from the 1st of the 5th, 22. Subject to change. One-year standard unit rate for new home gas and electricity customers and direct debit and EBIL. For details of EAB, T's and C's, rates, exit fee, standing charge and green energy claims, see sseairtricity.com. Now on Documentary on News Talk, producer Brian Kenny looks at the connection between the Amazon and Ireland and the real impact of climate change. In From the Amazon to the Emerald Isle. Climate change and global warming are topics discussed regularly in Ireland, often in the context of emissions and carbon taxes. However, the consequences of climate change have never been more apparent, and the idea that it is something that is happening elsewhere, or isn't as serious as we are led to believe, is incorrect. What's happening today? in places as far off as the Amazon has a direct impact on what's happening in the rest of the world. Irishman Peter Hughes, a Colombian missionary based in Peru, has spent his life working in Latin America and is at the forefront of the battle to highlight the destruction of the Amazon and what that means for humanity. I would like to share with you something of the far-off way of the big, wonderful world of the Amazon. The Amazon River and the Amazon Basin, an area that's very far away from Ireland. And at the same time, because of the events that are happening in the Amazon, they are really shaping uh, major issues for the planet at large. The Amazon is shared by nine different Latin American countries. Today, there is something like 400 different ethnic groups living in the Amazon, uh, speaking 300 different languages and dialects. Indigenous groups now are being wiped out. And I think it's a very, very serious issue, an important issue, to understand how much the world loses when any of these small or big indigenous groups come to an end. Literally thousands of years of history and human living in relation to the rainforest is lost. The Amazon has also been called the lungs of the world, and rightly so. I think it's a very good and true metaphor to describe that from these places, and the Amazon in particular, comes 20% of the oxygen that we breathe and need yeah, of the whole planet. So it's, we point out the relationship between this geographical area in South America and humanity at large, the world at large, and the planet. Yeah. 
also the same amount, the same percentage, 20% of the world's drinking water comes from the Amazon. So that's the life in abundance that in a few moments describes what the, situ- what the Amazon is about. But unfortunately, the life in the Amazon is under threat. The Amazon is the new El Dorado, where the power and the economic uh, titans of the world invest heavily in oil production, in mining, in the building of huge mega constructions of hydroelectric dams. But above all, the rainforest is being destroyed and being felled and deforestation is happening at a very accelerated rate. And this is because, here again, big economic interests are more concerned with trying to reclaim and uh, get land from the indigenous peoples and use it for huge industrial mega crops like soya and sugar uh, for world markets to the detriment of what the people themselves need or the peoples of the countries where the Amazon needs. In a word, it's an area that has been newly colonised. It's constantly being invaded. It's an invaded territory. It's being ruined. It's being despoiled and raped of its natural resources to the nth degree. We will no longer have access to the water and to the air and to the oxygen that we now have if a bioma like the Amazon is destroyed. Recently, and last October, the Catholic Church celebrated the most important meeting that we as a church people can have. It's called a synod. Yeah? Coming on towards nine o'clock in the morning, the last people to arrive were cardinals. And it was very, very, uh, how would I put it, a great sense of celebration when you got women, and particularly Amazon women, uh, inviting cardinals to join arms and join, join in a dance. Yeah, So you had these dignitaries of the Catholic Church with all the great robes, yeah? arm in arm with people from the Amazon yeah? dancing. So really, it was a real experience of the church coming from the periphery, coming from the outskirts, the marginalized, the place where life is scarcest, not respected, and placing itself with its own voice in the center. And what really happened was a wonderful experience of the need to decentralize the church, decentralize, uh, decentralize and decolonize and locate the church on the margins and the places where life is searched for most. Recently returned from Latin America, Liam Carey reflects on his time working all over the Amazon amongst the indigenous people and witnessing it's pillaging firsthand. I'm Lim Carey, originally from Ratchford Bridge. Um, 
joined the Columbans in 78. I was sent to Peru for a two-year experience and returned, was sent to Brazil. We were always on the periphery, out in the poor, and um, that was my first taste of the Amazon. People have been moving into the Amazon for hundreds of years, especially with the rubber industry from way back, from pre-First World War. They encouraged people into the Amazon to tap trees. Labourers. Yeah, labourers. And a lot of those people stayed on as what they call ribeirinhas. They, they lived on, on the side of the river fishing and that saw a little bit and they eked out a living there. The new landowners wanted to take over the whole area. And it was defence like it was a critical time and it was it was a difficult time in that sense. But because of the defence of the poor, the rich people who wanted to take over the land, like which would have been feather land really, but people encroached on it and had rights to it, like there was um, there was no respect. These people moved in and said they had bought titles off the government and the land was theirs, so they just pushed them off and they'd know where to go. So the church was involved in that sort of defence, defending those people. In more recent times I've been on the other side of the Amazon, on the Peruvian side, on a triple frontier between Bolivia, Brazil and Peru. But the Amazon, like today, it's the huge mega mega capital has been forced and pushed in there for, for big returns, whether it's the gold, mining of all sorts. You have the destruction of the forest, like taking out the wood. You have petrol and gas and the amount of spills, no matter what sort of technology they have, we have in that sense, but it becomes depleted and the spills are phenomenal so that's in that sense capital destroys in that sense like there has always been an intervention in the Amazon the economy became so important in the world people became secondary and nature has been there's been a separation really within ourselves from nature nature is looked on as dead material rather than sort of as something living I suppose over the years like coming back home like people are conscious of the environment which is one thing one thing is to be conscious of it and it's part of it but another thing is to love it and the indigenous people love where they are they're connected and they know they're connected and they know they depend on it and that it's all interdependent and it's love and it's love that changes things like knowledge doesn't won't change me I don't think you know, it's 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 definitely necessary, but if you don't come to some sort of an encounter with with the other, you know, in that sense, things don't change really. I think, in some sense, and it's to have some sort of an experience of the value of nature and just to see it and to sense the wonder of it. I've gone down the Amazon from Iquitos to to Belen, which is 1,500 kilometres by boat, and gone up it, and I've gone around it again. I've gone down the Rio Madeira and into the, Ama- into the Amazon main branch and up the Amazon. Down under the parish I was sent to when I went first to the Amazon in Brazil, this is down in Pará. In that particular diocese, which was on the Araguaia River, which is part of the Amazon, there were the indigenous peoples had become so frustrated been pushed back in on top of each other the tribe there was about 2,000 people in it in, in the late 50s and they had they were reduced down to about 30 people 
the women were puncturing their wombs. Suicide was common. So the bishop was looking for people to go in there. So he found three Charles de Foucault sisters in France. And they came there and they lived with them. The last of them died, I think it was 2013, 2013, after 60 years there. And the tribe was back up to a thousand and at peace with its neighbours. You know, and they went there not to impose anything or religion or anything else, but to live with them and to accompany them in life, you know, in that sense. So, like, lots of things are possible in terms of respect when people's lives are respected. We can recuperate. But if we continue at the level we're at of sort of where profit and it's all for profit, it's not about people or not about nature, like it's slaughter all before that at any cost profit has to be gained for those people and that's what you see today which was more i'd say maybe back when i went there first in the in the when in the 80s and when they had already given incentives back in the 70s people thought they were really investing in progress and it was development but it's highly questioned today i traveled to the university of minute to meet with Professor Peter Thorne, who's director of the Climate Change Research Centre. I wanted to hear about the latest research and the facts behind climate change. He told me, amongst other things, how Amazon dieback has a direct impact on us here in this country. So I'm Professor Peter Thorne. I'm the director of the Icarus Climate Research Centre at Maynooth University. So it's it, it, as in any academia, the, the main the main thing is to advance our research um, into, in this case, all cases, all aspects of climate change. We we definitely have seen events in the last few years that have been made unquestionably more likely due to climate change. The Long River flooding on the Shannon in both 2015 and then earlier again earlier this year were made far more likely by human influence upon the climate system that there are multiple studies supporting the link between increase in multi-day rainfall events which lead to such flooding and climate change. Um, equally, arguably, aspects of the droughts that we have seen in both 2018 and now in 2020 have been made more likely. The other thing is that the island we live in is a degree warmer, generally. That means an elongated growing season. It also means, unfortunately, that certain pests may be able to become virulent. All our infrastructure is set up for a climate that we are increasingly no longer seeing. Um, and yes, that involves things like decisions as to what to plan, but it also includes physical infrastructure, our roads, our bridges, our buildings. Our buildings are set for thermal comfort across the range of climate that we're increasingly moving away from. So there will be a need to retrofit buildings to be able to cope with climate 20, 30, 50, 100 years hence. Um, and then there are things like fodder crises, which are, have happened in 2018 and are likely to happen again in 2020, because we've foreshortened the growing season due to the drought. So there are all kinds of impacts that we already feel, 
um, and that already can be traced back to some extent to climate change. Things that are happening today in Australia will impact the weather we have in 10 to 14 days time. The atmosphere is well mixed on those bases. So if, for example, we see Amazon dieback because of reduced rainfall in the Amazon basin, that will have major impacts potentially upon the weather that we experience here because you change a lush rainforest, massive source of moisture into the atmosphere to a drier, for example, savannah type of um, environment. Now that has immediate impacts for Brazil, but because the whole Earth atmosphere system is interconnected, that will have impacts broader, further afield, including into Europe, but more generally globally. The more we play with the system, the more we change the system, the greater the changes that occur everywhere. Changes and cannot be localised. Um, there are things that are unique to Ireland. We have, for a decade plus, had offshore licensing legislation cut up, um, caught up in the system. So while the UK, the Netherlands, Denmark have been merrily putting in huge offshore wind farms, and if you've ever flown over or even taken a ferry across the Irish Sea, you would have seen the wind farms to the north of Wales, between Wales and the Isle of Man, etc. And if you'd flown over the North Sea, you'd have seen them all over the North Sea. We could do that in theory. There's no logistical reason why we couldn't do that here. It is a legal reason. What was the legal reason? We have not sorted out our offshore licensing. It's clear and simple as that. Yeah, it's, it's about cooperation and investment and you have to look at the post-COVID-19 recovery and think, well, this is, this is the opportunity to align investment with long-term thinking. In way, and that makes sense because the economic costs of inaction on climate change dwarf the costs of action on climate change. We know that... Uh, one and a half degree world doesn't look a hell of a lot different to the world we live in today. If you allow it to go to a two degree world, it starts to look considerably different. If you then allow it to go to a three degree warmer world, well, you're in a totally different paradigm. And the costs equally mount up. It's not a linear mounting up. As we go further and further from today, it's almost like an exponential. And we all know what an exponential is after COVID-19 and the R number. Well, effectively, the economic damages of inaction are scale in a similar way. So every time you move a half degree, it kind of doubles the impact. It's not, it's not something we want to play with. It is the next generation of people that will be most impacted by our negligence in caring for the earth. And in order to get a perspective on how they feel about this, I travelled to Ballinrobe in County Mayo and met with members of the Green School Committee at St Joseph's Primary School. Hi, my name is Koi and I'm here in Ballinrobe, St Joseph's Primary School, County Mayo. And I were part of the Green Schools here, my, my friends. Uh, my name is Matthew. My name is Grace. And my name is Kleena. I joined the Green Schools because I thought it was important that um, 
we try and fix all the problems that um, we made already in the world, like um, climate change. Um, because if we keep going on making more problems, then it'll be trickier and trickier to fix them. And the next generation will, it'll be even harder on them than it is for us now. So we entered a competition for a play um, called UNESCO and we made it to the finals. Um, the reason we made this play was to raise awareness for the pollinators and the Oman land. Pollinators are important because they give us food and they help our environment. To help the pollinators, we've been planting trees and we've been ex putting extra bulbs out into the front of our school to help the air. And we've also brought a woman from the Pollinators Ireland to come and talk to our fifth class about the pollinators. We tried to be our best for our ability to become a plastic free school. So we, what we did as well, we made a polytunnel so we could grow our own food for the school. So in order to make a plastic free school, we had to um, educate the children on why they shouldn't be bringing plastic and telling them which kind of plastics are reusable and which kind aren't. We went around to the classes and told them about um, like metal water bottles, bamboo lunch boxes, um, different types of wraps for your sandwiches that, won't, that will biodegrade. So to make our earth better, we're trying to get people to stop driving to school and more walking. For the most part, we've got 88% of the school walking and on our carbon-free day last year, we had 98% of the school walk. Um, and you don't even need to be in Mayo to do this. You can be in any part of the country to do this because all you need is a little bit of space and on earth. I, I'd say a lot more, there's a lot more work to be done until we've, we can be climbing shit and until then we have to keep going. Where it's a start anyway and it's always easier to finish something when you've started it. You're listening to From the Amazon to the Emerald Isle on Documentary on News Talk. Young Friends of the Earth campaigner Hannah Fitzpatrick reflects on her trip around Europe exploring sustainable farms and new ways of growing food. I met with her in Dublin Stevens Green where she explained her philosophy and hopes for the future. Yeah, my name is Hannah and I am a member of Young Friends of the Earth, which is a volunteer activist environmental organisation, very much grassroots and non-hierarchical. So, All right, well, I joined Young Friends of the Earth when I was um, quite young. I was about 16 or 17. And, you know, for me, it came from a sense of um, fear that the environment was being destroyed and... What I saw was, you know, all these rainforests burning down on the TV and, um, you know, the coral reefs being um, bleached and, you know, there was just like a lot of problems and that was like my first love, you know, nature, just that's what that, that's when I first, you know, saw this this grand beauty as something like that's so much bigger than us, than like my little self and, you know, that's kind of... That was like the sacred thing for me. And, you know, I saw that people were destroying that. So, yeah, that's where I came from. But 
you know, as as the years have gone by, I've kind of, you know, broadened my perspective a lot and seen that it's it's not really just a problem about the environment. It's a problem about, I mean, the problem is everywhere. It's about how we how we relate to each other as people and how we relate to ourselves as people and that extends on to how we treat the environment so it's you know really it's not just a small little issue it's a huge um it's a huge system it's it's our it's our economic system it's our it's our cultural beliefs everything you know the world has not always been like this this is like in the past maybe 200 years or more that our world was you know industrialized you know this isn't always how humans have lived so there is another way that we can live like that it's conceivable um and i would also say that the solutions are out there and they're everywhere you know people are living in eco villages they're growing food with sustainable agriculture such as permaculture and agroforestry and all these different techniques but it has to happen on a small scale first so that's what i that's what like brings me a lot of hope and especially being involved in them brings me hope because um, you know you can't really be passive and be hopeful at the same time and that's what Joanna Macy says she's um, you have to have an active hope you have to be you have to be part of the solutions and part of the the collective mass that are doing something and not just sitting on your couch and saying well I think I might go this way or I think I might go this way and you know I think I'm just going to be hopeless because then you're of course you're going to be hopeless <laughs> there are better ways to grow food and the these are like yeah I saw them I was I was actually on a permaculture farm but more of a permaculture garden in Austria and um, you know it wasn't a very big space like it was about maybe uh, three acres or less and he was growing so so much food because he was you know you know working with the land rather than against it and you know with organic permaculture you can you can get such a bigger yield of healthier food and and food that isn't going to destroy the soil um so that we can actually sustain this model and not just sustain because sustainability is the buzzword but you know the real thing is regenerating regenerating the earth that we have you know and decimated to a point so yeah that's that's kind of the that's such a big one you know growing food in in a helpful way that's that's helping the planet and also is going to be healthy for people often the national debate around these issues focuses on farming and rural ireland versus urban centers with a nation so firmly rooted in agriculture i wondered was it realistic or possible to change the way we produce our food i went to clock jordan in county tipperary to visit a community farm and met with Oliver Moore, who showed me what they have done on a 67-acre plot, and to hear his perspective on how most Irish farmers could benefit rather than lose out from this new model of farming. So I'm Oliver Moore. I live in Clock Jordan Eco Village. I'm involved in the farm here as well. We have a community-owned farm called Clock Jordan Community Farm. So Clock Jordan Eco Village is a 67-acre site on the edge of a, an established village and we have a farm, forestry, allotments, amenities including an amphitheatre uh, and residential 
uh, area. So it's about one third of the land is residential, two thirds is non-residential. We're going past a bakery here. This is a wood-fired bakery here on the right. Um, just up here, see all the wood. It's um, called Riot Rye. So it's windfall wood um, used to heat an oven that can supply that bakery there, the black building. Um, supplies a few hundred loaves a week, mostly to the town of Clotjordan. And people have a membership scheme as well. Mm-hmm. So like the farm, you can be a member of the bread club, member of the farm, you can be a member of buyers clubs, mushroom clubs, egg clubs, all kinds of clubs. So um, When you're in the club then, how does that work? You just pay? You just get a weekly, yeah, the weekly subscription and the, the producer knows they've guaranteed money. Um, and you get coming. fresh produce. And you get very, very fresh produce delivered to your door. Including milk, actually. Um, that's from a few miles out the road, from Crawford's Farm, which was originally part of the CSA here, actually, the community-owned farm. So, yeah, technically you could have your whole food, your milk, your eggs, your mushrooms, your veg, uh, your bread, all either delivered to your door or collected at a very, very close-by distribution point. So it's quite a, yeah, it's quite a package of stuff and that means that then any surplus you buy will probably just be in the local centre which keeps the town kind of buoyant so you don't really need to go into supermarkets so much then because you only need you know once every three weeks you might go to a supermarket rather than every week because of that any community any village could set up a community co-op a co-op shop or a community farm much like in the last decade or decade and a half there's been an explosion of community gardens and allotments and Ireland didn't really have a tradition of that certain cities had a little bit but not compared to the explosion we've seen so like you can see how you know rural Ireland has been to some small but real extent animated by this growth in community gardens and allotments um, so the next step beyond that really would be community farm and it's not inconceivable that all of those WhatsApp groups you're a member of, <laughs> you could just hit people one day and go, listen, let's, let's approach a farmer and make an arrangement. You know, 50 people together, 20 people together in a group committing to buy veg off a farmer for a year. The distribution point here versus the veg, there'd be a few hundred, a few hundred metres between where they two, those two things happen, the production and distribution. So in our context, even though production has a bigger impact than transport apart from flying for most foods Um, for us here we'd probably end up driving into Nina more often if we didn't have a farm and if we didn't have all those other elements you know the farm the bakery the eggs the mushrooms the whole food um, bulk purchasing if we didn't have all that stuff going on we'd end up driving into the city more often um, or, or the big town you know nearby more often so there's that and then there's the fact that there's more employment then locally and then there's what is produced itself so it's loads of vegetables rather than a single dairy farm so like this land here the 67 acres was originally like a single dairy farm and now you've got tons and tons of vegetables being produced um you know thousands of loaves being produced um and then thousands of apples being picked and processed by people uh into juice for the year round so you've got an awful lot of abundance, a huge abundance of food. And that's just the food bit. There's also then amenity and, and, rec- and residential. So you've all of that happening on 67 acres where once there was a single dairy farm. 
Um, well, some land it's probably good to be used for livestock. Uh, mixed agroecological farming is probably the best option where possible. And if it's not possible, then certainly building a biodiversity and carbon farming type elements in would help. Yeah, well, lots of lots of farmers and environmentalists get on very well, and lots of farmers would see themselves as being environmentalists. Uh, I mean, mainstream farming is caught in a, a sort of a triple bind. You've got this kind of get bigger, get out kind of approach, whereby you know people borrow money on the basis of growth and want to grow and need to grow to stay viable. Uh, with the commodity price going down, farm size going up, it's kind of a it's a difficult conundrum for them. Then you got stronger regulations in some ways, um, but less cap support, less common agricultural policy subsidy support. Um, so yeah, you've got this uh, get bigger, get out, stronger environmental regulation, less money to do it. So it's a tough situation for farmers to be in and they're getting kind of contradictory advice. They're getting advice to clean up the environment and to increase the stocking rate, for example. Ireland's obligations around climate action have been radically affected by a recent Supreme Court judgment, which requires Ireland to revise its current climate policy and take direct action on climate change. Clodagh Daly of Climate Case Ireland explains to me how this came about. My name is Clodagh Daly and I'm involved with Climate Case Ireland and the Stop Blood Coal Ireland campaigns. Um, So Climate Case Ireland is a legal challenge that was brought by an NGO called Friends of the Irish Environment. It's a really, really small NGO. Um, And the application for leave for judicial review, so basically to get permission to bring the case, that was done back in 2017, so three years ago. So litigation is quite a lengthy process. Um, and what we did was um, Ireland's National Mitigation Plan was published in July 2017. And our National Mitigation Plan is essentially Ireland's national plan to substantially reduce our emissions. The Irish government had repeatedly agreed that it would be necessary for Ireland's emissions to reduce between 25 to 40 percent between 1990 and 2020. Repeatedly agreed that is necessary to prevent the worst impacts of climate change and in fact under this plan not only were Ireland's emissions not going to decrease they were actually going to increase and Ireland's Environmental Protection Agency projected that Ireland's emissions would actually increase by approximately 10% between 1990 and 2020 instead of falling between 25 to 40%. You know, and that was, I think, what was quite remarkable about our case is that the science was completely agreed upon. And what we were essentially trying to say was that, well, you can't knowingly contribute to climate change when when you know exactly what the risks are. You have completely agreed to the science. What we have shown with our case is that there is a hard legal limit to the discretion the government has in creating climate policies. I mean, it's very telling that, you know, when the 2018 IPCC report uh, came out and, you know, there was all these headlines about we've 10 years to save the planet, we've 12 years to save the planet, which, I mean, that that's kind of problematic messaging. But um, it was very telling that in Irish media, you know, all of this was focused around 
And so what about the carbon tax? How much are the farmers going to have to pay? How much are people in rural Ireland are going are, are going to have to pay? Um, you know, a carbon tax is one policy measure. We have to transform all sectors of the economy. And so I think are politicians afraid of acting on climate change because they are afraid that it will impact um, their chances of getting re-elected into office? They are so, so sorely mistaken if they think they will get re-elected if they do not tackle this right now. They should be so worried that there are these 16 and 17 year olds that are going to be eligible to vote very, very soon and that are watching them very, very closely. The new, The next generation are so politically engaged politicians either need to step up and have some vision and bravery and courage to actually say well if I'm going to go into office at this critical point in time yeah I'm going to need to obviously address this issue imagine if we had a party government that just didn't want to deal with COVID we would never tolerate that and I think you know that is what we've seen during the pandemic it shows us what our priorities are and now we have seen how the state responds when there is an emergency that they actually perceive to be an emergency we know that so yeah they should act like it's actually an emergency so okay our case challenged ireland's 2017 national mitigation plan and basically what we were saying was the decision to adopt into law a plan that would allow ireland's emissions to increase is inconsistent with Ireland's legal obligations on climate change. Seven Supreme Court judges unanimously agreed with our case. Um, And so the 2017 National Mitigation Plan has now been quashed. It's gone. The government now will have to come up with a new plan. And it is really upon all of us to ensure that the new plan is consistent with climate science and climate justice, that, you know, people are going to be protected within this plan. If not now, when? You know, um, the transition to a low carbon economy is dangerously overdue. If the science is correct and action is required, then it is our government that will have to take the steps. With the Green Party now a part of national government, perhaps it is now time. I met with the Green Party's Peter Kavanagh and started by asking him about farming and rural Ireland and whether changing our current model is realistic or far-fetched. It's not that far-fetched, it's very realistic and farmers are always going to be at the forefront of fighting climate change, for from an Irish point of view anyway. Um, they're the custodians of the land and, and they're the best hope we have of escaping the effects of climate change. The, the problem is that we're built into a model of farming. We have this sort of, it's not even that traditional, it's not even that old, but just this model of farming where the only ones making any money out of it are the big meat producers, the big dairy producers and the big, big farmers. So small farmers are kind of left by the wayside. So we need to empower them and they're the ones we need to look at and make sure that that their, their produce is the best in the world, that they're getting the best price for it and that they're making a living wage out of farming. That's something that's that's not happening at the moment. And the reason it's not happening at the moment is we're, we're baked into this model of intensive production. Produce, 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 produce. And it's not working out for the small farmer. It is working out for a small few massive landowners and and that's the model that needs to change you need to make sure that every farmer is able to make a living out of farming and i firmly believe and and a lot of people would agree with me on this one that like like small scale locally produced organic that's the way to make the most money per acre out of your farm and and that's what it needs to be working on we don't need to be lining the pockets of massive farmers that own most of the acreage and most of the cows because that doesn't help the average farmer whereas taking action on climate change such as going back to small scale 
Irish animals, rare breed, or going back to tillage crops, or, you know, reforestation that's a massive way we can reduce our carbon emissions if we can pay farmers to reforest their their land that that is absolutely huge and it makes farming work for more people so i think the solution to climate change is a solution to the way we're doing farming at the moment and you mentioned lobby groups and that's quite right Uh, you know the problem is that the loudest voices are those of the farmers who stand to gain the most from the system the way it is now not your average suckler farmer who's barely making thirteen thousand a year or your average sheep farmer who's barely making eight and a half thousand a year farming isn't working for the average farmer and we need to make it work but we have to realize that this is the biggest challenge society has ever faced and we are going to have to fundamentally change everything the way we do everything and it's not just farming and no one solution is the answer it has to be everything so you know make farming work on a local level make it sustainable yes absolutely but if you don't also add in rural public transport into the mix rural broadband you know reinvigorating our our towns and villages around the country if you don't try and tackle all of the problems that rural ireland are facing in a way in a way that can deal with climate change then you are going to fail so it's about it's about this this joined up thinking this step back and looking at everything broadly so look it's it's a very very tough argument to win absolutely Absolutely understand that because you are asking people to fundamentally change what they do, what their parents did before them and potentially what their grandparents did before them. All you can do is just say to them, this has to happen. There is no, there's no second option to this. Either it happens or we're in serious, serious trouble. This idea of just taxing, taxing people into compliance, it doesn't work and it's not going to work. So it needs to be a behavioural shift and it needs to come from all sectors of society and the leadership has to be from the very, very top. The issues politically and this has been the great challenge for for the green party always is do you stick to your guns and say this is what needs to happen and anything short of this is a, is a failure or do you compromise do you go in and get the best you can and try and try and do whatever you can do to affect you know climate change to generate climate action and look the quandary for the greens in going into government look, you can't really do much from the opposition benches but is it good enough to go into government and not achieve enough there was a lot of talk about seven percent carbon emissions and we managed to get a commitment that an average of seven percent over the next 10 years will will happen and that's that's good the question is is it good enough because the science changes every day and if we want to get carbon neutral by 2030 um you know, 7% a year isn't enough. An average of 7% a year definitely isn't enough. Um, if it was 7% year on year, you might have a hope, but a yearly average over 10 years, no, not at all. Uh, and if we want to be completely carbon neutral by then, even 15% probably isn't enough. Like the science is evolving and what we're learning is evolving. So this is the political problem. What do you do? Do you go in and get some of what you want done? And then potentially as a small partner in a coalition get completely wiped out and you're not around for the the second five years that you have to save the world? Or do you stick to your bones and say, this is what we have to do? So look, the decision's made, we're in government now and now's the time to try and use that position to make sure that Ireland is in the best place possible to deal with climate change. At the end of the day, it's about a form of climate action that actually improves people's quality of life. That's that's the most important thing. There, there is absolutely no point in trying to tax people into compliance or trying to bully them into submission or trying to say you have to and to be prescriptive. At the end of the day, we need to create a kind of climate action that is easier for people, that makes it 
makes it easier for people to live and work that makes it easier for people to spend time with their families that makes it more pleasant to walk around our parks and our, and our, our, our rural areas our green spaces uh, that our rivers are clean for people who want to go fishing like all of this makes sense and we have to make it make sense to people and that's that's the major major political challenge that we face like this is absolutely I'm convinced the right thing to be doing um, we just need to make sure that people know it's it's not only the right thing but it's actually going to make your life better and that's that's the challenge Come gather around people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown and accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone if your time to you is worth saving then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone or the times they are From the Amazon to the Emerald Isle was produced by Brian Kenny and was supported by a grant from the Columban Missionary Society. We may never work in the same way again. So reimagine the office with scalable workspaces that flex to your needs. Design-led interiors and world-class IT. Iconic offices have reinvented the future of working, so you don't have to. Hybrid offices, co-working, or custom floors for a global HQ. 16 prime Dublin locations, infinite possibilities. Experience it for yourself. Visit iconicoffices.ie to reimagine how working can work for your business.